You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It was like Baltimore, said one visitor to New Ichota, capital of a nation that is no longer visible, though it still exists, the Cherokee Nation in what is now Georgia, slightly north of present-day Atlanta. There were streets, there were buildings, courthouses, schools, a government center. The Cherokee Nation had a constitution, a supreme court. It had a language that was previously oral in the 1820s, translated into a written form, and a newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix, was printed. It was not, as some people might think, merely roaming bands of Indians living in teepees or something like that. It was a civilization as people knew it in the 1820s. There would be lots of pressure on this community, but they also had a lot of friends in the United States and agreements with the federal government. And they'd be okay for a while, until a discovery was made. I want to take on this topic because I think the view of Native Americans in modern time really falls into two categories. And one is, in a lot of literature and history, a desire to learn about the stories of Native Americans, to learn about their culture, to learn about what happened to them. And with that, maybe a bit of regret that there isn't more of it in the fabric of American life and regret over things that happened in history. And then there's another school, and that's the inevitability. In other words, you know, you'll hear things like, well, in Europe, the Celts or numerous tribes were driven out. Numerous places in the world, people were conquered. There were battles. There were victors. And it was inevitable what would happen. I kind of understand both points of view, and I also think there's some mixture that can occur. You acknowledged that at some point, European settlers were going to happen. The population of Europe and its um, desire for food and for land, you know, wasn't going to allow an empty American continent for very long. But I also believe those ideas should be contextualized too, and that's what I seek to do today. For instance, the idea that if we went back to the 1820s or the 1830s, that something like the removal of Indians from the southeast to present-day Oklahoma was inevitable. There was protest. There was resistance. There were allies of the Indians in parts of the United States. There was an extremely close vote in Congress. And there were significant people who were against this policy, not in modern times, in the 1830s. And we're going to talk all about that today. This letter arrives at the door of Congress. Respectfully, she with. She with is kind of like, see this, read this, look at this. That your memorialists are deeply impressed with the belief that the present crisis in the affairs of the Indian nations calls loudly on all who can feel the woes of humanity to solicit your honorable body to bestow upon this subject, involving as it does the prosperity and happiness of more than 50,000 of our fellow Christians. When, therefore, injury and oppression threaten to crush a hapless people within our borders, 
We, the feeblest of the feeble, appeal with confidence to those who should be the representatives of national virtues, as they are the depositaries of national powers, of the undoubted national right which the Indians have to the land of their forefathers. This isn't some modern letter. It's not a YouTube, you know, it isn't some recent statement or some new book that came out. It's from the ladies of Steubenville, Ohio, writing Congress in the 1830s. They not only argue not to remove the Indians because it's not right, they also say that it will cause our country curses denounced on the cruel and ungrateful and will bring lasting dishonor to the American character. They name themselves Francis Norton, Catherine Norton, Mary Norton, M.J. Hodge, Emily Page, Rachel Mason, E. Anderson, Mary Buchanan, Rebecca Buchanan, Hetty Collier, Eunice Collier, Elizabeth Beatty, Jane Beatty, Sarah Means, Elizabeth Sage, and 50 others from Steubenville, Ohio. It's one of many letters that Congress gets from a place that's not part of the Cherokee land protesting the removal of Cherokees west of the Mississippi. Now, what were they protesting? Let's tell a bit of the story. If we want to tell the history of the Cherokee tribe, which is the one that's most prominently featured, though this is also going to involve the Seminoles, the Creek, the Choctaw, and other tribes... But to tell the story of the Cherokees, it's best to refer to the Cherokee tribe itself. This is from their website. According to tribal history, Cherokee people have existed since time immemorial. Our oral history extends back through the millennia. It's recorded that our first European contact came in 1540 with Hernando de Soto's exploration on the southeast portion of our continent. Trade and intermarriage with various European immigrants soon followed, most notably with the English, Scots, and Irish. Treaties were made between the British and the Cherokee Nation as early as 1725, with Cherokee Nation being recognized as inherently sovereign through these nation-to-nation agreements. Cherokees took up arms in various sides of conflicts between the European factions in hope of staving off further predations of Cherokee land and sovereign rights. In time, missionaries and European influences created a strong educational and spiritual framework, with many Cherokees becoming Christians and sending their children to missionary schools to be educated in English. And this must be said, it was in the area of Georgia and Tennessee, few Cherokees had emulated their southern U.S. counterparts by building plantations worked by African slaves. This policy is true that that the Cherokee tribe is saying that the federal government of the United States from its earliest regarded Indians as nations. Now, that's not to say there's certain intentions in that, certain glimpses of a future, but Henry Knox, the first Secretary of War, whose department is going to be principally charged initially with dealing with these matters, was asked by Washington, you know, what to do and drafted Native American policy. Indian nations are sovereign. They possess the land they occupy. Federal government and not the states are responsible for dealing with them. There's the Indian Trade and Intercourse Act of 1790, which forbids the sale of Native American lands except in conjunction with a treaty with the federal government. Knox writes, the Indians, being the prior occupants, possess the right to the soil. Here's a proclamation from George Washington 
with Thomas Jefferson as Secretary of State also signing, apologizing by President of the United States, whereas I have received authentic information that certain lawless and wicked persons of the western frontier in the state of Georgia did lately invade, burn, and destroy a town belonging to the Cherokee Nation, although in amity with the United States, and put to death several Indians of that nation, and whereas such outrageous conduct not only violates the rights of humanity, but also endangers the public peace, I have therefore thought it fit to issue my proclamation, exhorting all the citizens of the United States to use utmost endeavors to apprehend and bring those offenders to justice. Done at the city of Philadelphia, the 12th day of December, in the year of our Lord, 1792, and of the independence of the United States in the 17th. Signed, President George Washington. Numerous treaties are issued between the 1790s and the 1820s and approved by Congress. And to some degree, the southeastern tribes accepted the idea that to remain with the United States, there had to be some level of civilizing, some level of working friendly in a friendly fashion, of modernizing. But the Cherokees of all of them embrace it enthusiastically. You could look at it as right or wrong that they had to make these changes, but they believe strongly if it became more like European American settlers, they'd be left alone. By the 1820s, Cherokees are living in log cabins. They're cultivating fields. Some own stores, other businesses. They welcome in Christian missionaries to set up schools, to teach English. They have churches. Sequoia, who is a Cherokee silversmith and a farmer, develops a writing system, teaches it along with English. It's possible, one author suggests, that a greater percentage of Cherokees could read and write in their native language than Southern whites could in English. The first Native American newspaper publishing in Cherokee and in English, the Cherokee Phoenix, starts in 1828. And they develop a constitution modeled on the American one. A two-house legislature, a general council, principal chief, kind of like a president, and eight district courts. All Cherokee lands, it declares, are tribal property. Only the general council can give it up. On the national scene, if we're talking about 1828, there's also a significant change happening. Presidency going from Monroe to John Quincy Adams, and the 1828 is going to be a big election year in which Andrew Jackson will win and take over the following year. Something else happens that year, this newspaper article. Gold, a gentleman of first respectability in Habersham County, writes us thus under the date of 22nd July, Two gold mines have just been discovered in this country, in Georgia, and preparations are making to bring these hidden treasures of the earth to use. The Macon Telegraph reports that in the winter of 1829 and 30, when the precious metals having been discovered in a great abundance upon our Cherokee soil, great numbers of people from Georgia and other states rushed to the territory in search of its treasures. Gold's discovered, Carroll County, Georgia, other parts, much of that land is found under the control of the Cherokee. And Cherokees, it should be said, engage in mining. Some of them are pretty darn good at it and have been for some time. But settler mining operations spring up in Lumpkin County, White, Union, and Cherokee in what's called the Great Intrusion. It was estimated that there were 4,000 miners working on Yahula Creek alone. 
and over 300 ounces of gold per day were being produced from an area in the southeast corner of Cherokee County. They have no permission to be there. The nation notices, especially when the Philadelphia Mint receives $212,000 in gold from Georgia in 1830 alone. So, initially, when you're talking about um, Indian removal, what's first happening is that they're being removed and displaced of lands by white settlers from Georgia with the blessing of the state of Georgia, which is passing all sorts of laws. And eventually they're going to get to the point in the 1830s where they're just going to make it impossible for Cherokees to even be on land at all. But it's not initially coming from the federal government. And it's useful to think about Andrew Jackson is the principal president associated with Indian removal, but it's useful to think about it in more of a context than just, hey, Andrew Jackson removed the Cherokee tribe. Each president has a bit of a role. It really, you can start with Thomas Jefferson. Now, Thomas Jefferson in his public policy as president doesn't have a lot that you can point to. And, and we're not going to see actual removal of tribes. In fact, you're going to see flourishing of tribes under his administration and those following but he does, in his rhetoric, lay the, the anchor, the foundation of some of what Andrew Jackson's going to pick up on. Here's what Jefferson says in a private letter, but it is to a former North Carolina Senator, Benjamin Hawkins. Here's Jefferson. I consider the business of hunting has already become insufficient to furnish, furnish clothing and substance subsistence to the Indians. The promotion of agriculture, therefore, and household manufacture are essential in their preservation, and I am disposed to aid and encourage it liberally. In truth, the ultimate point of rest and happiness for them is to let our settlements and theirs meet and blend together, to intermix and become one people. Incorporating themselves with us as citizens of the United States this is what the natural progress of things will in courts bring on, and it will be better for them to be identified with us. So it's still not a very modern um, philosophy of dealing with Native Americans, not something we would look to kindly or all of us would look to kindly on today, but it is a little better than just a kind of blatant forcible removal. It reflects Jefferson's upbringing. His father, Peter Jefferson, was a an explorer, and he was exploring the area around the Blue Ridge Mountains and dealt with a lot of Indian tribes. In his childhood, Jefferson would have met several Indians. But certainly in Jefferson's mind and in his letters, you see a distinction between what he would even use the term savages that were far away from civilization and cooperating with the British or the French, and Indians that were close by that he encountered in Virginia and traded with that he would think would be candidates for this type of policy. It gets a little bit more sinister in a letter to William Henry Harrison. These are private letters, but William Henry Harrison is the governor of Indiana and can do something about policy. President Jefferson writes, to promote this disposition to exchange lands, which they have to spare and we want, and for necessaries, which we have to spare and they want, we shall push our trading uses and be glad to see the good and influential individuals among them run in debt. So if nothing else you see in this letter to the governor of 
Indiana, Indiana Territory at this point, a, an acknowledgement that this is what he wants. You know, keep selling them items and getting them into our, you know, you might say capitalist system or mercantile system, and we'll, they'll run up debt and they'll have to sell us their land. They will in time either incorporate as citizens of the United States or remove beyond the Mississippi. So he's already setting this up. So you can see that there's um, already some of the feelings that are attributed always to Andrew Jackson are already there in the culture. Because I doubt even Jefferson makes this up, this idea of moving from the Mississippi. But he's certainly a president articulating it. He writes about it as early as 1776 uh, when he's working with the Continental Congress. When he hears about Indians that are working with the British, nothing will reduce those wretches so soon as pushing the war into the heart of their company, country. But I would not stop there. I would never cease pursuing them while one of them remained on this side of the Mississippi. In the Great Lakes region, Jefferson is meeting with the Shawnee and other tribes. He invites them to the White House the last year of his presidency. And here he makes it clear, if anyone wars with us, we will drive them to such as a, such a distance, they shall never be able to strike us again. But it's not what he wanted. He wanted them to become citizens. In time, you will be as we are. You will become one people with us. Your blood will mix with ours and will spread with ours over this great land. And that seems to be Jefferson's, there's other letters, we could read them all, but they seem to have the same tone. He'd like something nice, but would settle for removal if they cannot, you know, adjust with us in our civilization. The presidents that come after him, we can jump to James Monroe, who in 1817 recommends that federal Indian policy include provisions for their improvement in the arts and civilized life. But again, his tactic, just like with Jefferson, is to get them to lose their land. The earth was given to mankind to support the greatest number of which it is capable. No tribe or people have a right to withhold from the wants of others more than is necessary for their own support and comfort. You see in James Monroe, who is not seeking officially to move anyone right now, still you see that kind of philosophy that we might say today that, you know, sometimes conquest needs to happen kind of mentality. And also a farmer's mentality as opposed to a nomadic people that you're taking up too much land. You know, Europe's starving, that we need to grow. And I think that's a lot of what's in the mix at this point. The counter to this, though, is that the Cherokees, as we explained, were doing exactly what Jefferson or, or Monroe was seeing as the very high goal. Because when you get the John Quincy Adams administration, he's a little bit more troubled by this Indian policy. In fact, he wants to send federal troops to the Cherokee Nation, not to oversee removal, but to protect them from what's happening with the Georgia settlers. There was not a large enough federal army even though he did several times call federal armies down there to resolve disputes, there isn't a large enough army in the tie to stop anything that's going on. In John Quincy Adams' personal diary, you see the reflection, you know, you see him expressing regret over the Indian situation and the removal policy, what's happening in Georgia 
which is happening during the tail end of his presidency. He regrets that his own Secretary of State, Henry Clay, predicted that Indians would be gone in 50 years. Their disappearance from the human family would be no great loss to the world. Adams is dismayed by it, but also thinks that there is some foundation in his words. It's hard to deny based on what's going on. And now you enter into the story, Andrew Jackson, and he wins that election of 1828 and is going to defeat John Quincy Adams. He has a long history with Indians. After the War of 1812, he served as a commissioner, negotiated treaties with Indians. He would resort to threats, bribery to get what he wants. Um, He's already coming into the presidency, has taken 50 million acres of tribal land from the Choctaws, Chickasaws, Creeks, Seminoles, and Cherokees. Now, to hear Jackson present it, and, and this is not, you know, I don't think there's a lot of interest in, in modern discussions of history to present Andrew Jackson's side. But if you do, his side of it is these state forces, these settlers, the state of Georgia, they're going to force Indians to remove, they're going to ruin their way of life as it is. At least the federal government can be there to make sure that a removal to an area where there's no conflict happens in an orderly fashion. Here's Jackson. Our conduct towards these people is deeply interesting to our national character. Their present condition contrasted with what they once were makes a most powerful appeal to our sympathies. Our ancestors found them the uncontrolled possessors of these vast regions. By persuasion and force, they have been made to retire from river to river, and from mountain to mountain, until some of the tribes have become extinct and others have been left but remnants to preserve for a while their once terrible names. So, if you're reading this, Jackson's message, he sounds very sympathetic to Indians. It's like, and he's presenting it as a kind of present situation. Well, yes, there's the romanticism. What do we do now? Surrounded by the whites with their arts of civilization, which by destroying the resources of the savage, doom him to weakness and decay. So, we cause the problem, but we're also, there's nothing we can do about it, right? (laughs) That's kind of what he's saying. That this fate surely awaits them if they remain within the limits of the states does not admit of a doubt. And we have to do everything to avoid so great a calamity. As a means of effecting this end, I suggest for your consideration the propriety of setting apart an ample district west of the Mississippi, outside of the limits of any state or territory now formed to be guaranteed to the Indian tribes as long as they shall occupy it. You know, so that's Jackson's position. And... um It's fair to represent it. There's nothing wrong with representing it and understanding it. It's not going to last. It's not going to be guaranteed. And maybe people then knew that. Maybe they didn't. It would be a long time, but it's less than 100 years that Cherokee territory will be trampled upon. So um, when when not gold, but oil is discovered in their area. He seeks Congress's help and asks them to pass an Indian Removal Act. And... um, That is not something that's passed easily. It's bitterly opposed. Theodore Freelinghuisen, senator from New Jersey. They are original tenants of the soil. They hold a title beyond and superior to the British crown and her colonies and to all adverse pretensions of our confederation and subsequent union 
God in his providence planted these tribes on this western continent, so far as we know, before Great Britain had a political existence. I'm aware that some writers here, by a system of artificial reasoning, endeavored to justify or rather excuse the encroachments made upon Indian territory, and they denominate these abstractions the law of nations, and in this ready way the question is dispatched. Sir, as we trace the sources of this law, we find its authority to depend either upon the conventions or the common consent of nations. And when, maybe to inquire, were the Indian tribes ever consulted on the establishment of such a law? That's Freelingheisen. Freelingheisen also takes Jackson and others' points directly to task. The removal of the Indian tribes to the west of the Mississippi is demanded by the dictates of humanity. This is a word of conciliating import, but it often makes its way to the heart under very doubtful titles. And its present claims deserves to be rigidly questioned. Who urges this plea? They who covet the Indian lands? Who wish to rid themselves of a neighbor that they despise? And whose state pride is enlisted in rounding off their territories? So, um, I think the only reason to even view these debates is that... um, is that so we don't get so far removed from the fact that there was a debate? That's a senator of the United States. It's not a small minority opinion. A senator of the United States reflecting nearly 50% of the body of Congress in his opinion. And of course, a more famous opponent of Indian removal is Davy Crockett, who comes from the president's own state of Tennessee. And, um, you know, we don't have recordings of what people said back then, but here's, here's a sketch of the remarks of the Honorable David Crockett. Mr. Crockett said that considering his very humble abilities, it might be expected he should content himself with a silent vote. Situated as he was in relation to his colleagues, he felt it was a duty to himself to explain the motives which governed him. He had always viewed the native Indian tribes of this country as a sovereign people. He believed they had been recognized as such from the very foundation of this government, and the United States were bound by treaty to protect them. It was their duty to do so. And as for giving the money of the American people for the purpose of removing them in the manner proposed, he would not do it. He would do that only for which he could answer to his God. Whether he could answer it before the people was comparatively nothing. So the journal goes on. Mr. Crockett said he was often forcibly reminded of the remark made by the famous Red Jacket in the rotundo of this building, where he was shown the panel which represented in sculpture the first landing of the pilgrims, with an Indian chief presenting to them an ear of corn in token of friendly welcome. The aged Indian said, That was good, the Indian said. He knew that they came from the Great Spirit, and he was willing to share the soil with his brothers from over the great water. No man would be more willing to see them removed than he was if it could be done in a manner agreeable to themselves, but not otherwise. He knew personally that a part of the tribe of the Cherokees were unwilling to go. Anyway, it goes on, and and it's not his own speech, it's the journal record, but um, this is something that's going to make David Crockett actually a hero among the Whig party, and they even talk about running him possibly for president. They end up um, running a bevy of candidates to try to dislodge Martin Van Puren and throw the and throw the election to the House of Representatives. They do not just run one candidate in that election. 
There's a tremendous amount of opposition manifested mostly in the form of evangelical reaction and petition campaigns, some from women, but also men. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. There's an unusual amount of letters coming to Congress, and one of the significant things about the anti-Indian removal petition campaign of 1829 and 1830 is that these are women writing letters and their petitions going directly to Congress. In the past, it might have been necessary to seek out a male to be kind of the in-between for women to write a petition just with their local government, but not Congress. These were going right to Congress. And one of the real first national campaigns, many of these people writing these petitions are going to also get involved later in the abolitionist movement. You had petitions that came from the ladies of Huntington, Ohio, the inhabitants of Farmington, Maine, the aforementioned ladies of Steubenville, Ohio, the ladies of Burlington, New Jersey, Jeremiah Everts, the secretary of the American Board of Commissions for Foreign Missionaries. This is an evangelical group that goes into the Indian Territory trying to convert many of them called the removal bill something that would cause America to forfeit God's protection and blessing. They did keep some of the people who were in charge of the campaign petition secret. That's how controversial it was. A group of ladies would write letters directly to Congress and speak out in this way. 
Many of these petitions, by the way, are still in the National Archives. As for the reaction in Congress, William Lumpkin of Georgia, congressman, said that Congress has been flooded with petitions signed by a million men, women, and children. Now, he was wrong. It was not millions. But it gives you the impression that this had on Congress, because they hadn't received anything like this before. You had petitions from Batavia, Ohio, Chester County, Pennsylvania, Lewes, New York, Mansa, Massachusetts, Virgil, New York, Huntsburger, Ohio. A men's petition comes from Burlington, New Jersey. The bill on Indian removal in Congress passes only 102 to 97, and President Andrew Jackson has to work senators and congressmen to get them to vote for this bill. Not only are Whigs united, there are a number of Democrats who defect. Of course, David Crockett becomes the most prominent among them. Uh, He writes to a friend, I condemn the course pursued to the Southern Indians. I loved in order to sustain the honor of my country, and I will do it whether I live in or out of Congress. That's what he writes to a constituent that asked him about his stand. And, you know, Crockett becomes something of a hero, uh, particularly among Whigs. This is what a New England Whig paper says. A great deal has been said in the newspapers concerning Colonel Crockett, who has again been elected a member of Congress from Tennessee. It was the misfortune of the colonel to have received no school education in his youth, and since to have had but little opportunity to retrieve that defect. But he is a man of strong mind and of great goodness of heart. Now, it's not everyone. There's other New England journals that are like, he's actually kind of a bumpkin. Uh, But you see the Whig Party getting excited about having another guy from Tennessee who kind of looks like Andrew Jackson. And this is the genesis of the, the book comes out about Crockett, which is borrowed from other tales where you talk about him wrestling gators and killing a bear when he was three and the like. These are frontier stories that probably many frontiersmen overcame great obstacles. Certainly Crockett's father and people of that generation really had some heroic stories and were fighting wild beasts uh, just to survive in the wilderness that they, they lived in. Some of the Crockett stories are exaggerated, but it's certainly something the Whigs like. They put him on a book tour eventually leading up to the 36th election, visits Philadelphia, Camden, New Jersey. He visits New York. He goes to the slums of New York where there's a large Democratic Jacksonian vote among recent immigrants. He makes some comments which aren't very nice about them, but he also condemns the conditions that people are living in, calls it Hell's Kitchen when he sees the Five Points neighborhood in um, this is an interesting thing about that is that that story of Crockett, Davy Crockett, the frontiersman coming to New York City is going to be picked up on by a novelist. And there's a novel called A Kentuckian in New York. And it's uh, kind of cool. So anyway, you know, it should be a movie. It's really a cool story. But that's what a lot of it is with Crockett's stories. He's also doing things like receiving a loan from the Bank of the United States and then supporting the Bank of the United States. You know, so it's not all great with with Crockett, but um, and he is aiming for the presidency. When he goes in that book tour, he misses a lot of votes in Congress. His opponents are going to use that against him. And eventually he's redistricted out and ends up going to the Alamo. You know, Crockett's opposition is notable in history, but and, and people know about that part of the story. What they don't know is about the other 97 congressmen that voted against it. 
mostly from the Northeast, 79 to 42 of Northeast congressmen voted against it. Southern members voted for removal by a 60 to 15 margin. In the Senate, similar thing. 14 to 3 Southern senators, 13 of 18 Northeast senators vote against it. You can look at the Indian removal fight as legislation as a beginning of the you know, the run-up to the Civil War. And that's how Paul Finkelman, in his book, Congress and the Emergence of Sectionalism, says uh, the campaign initiated by Georgia to remove Indians on its land and joined rather quickly by Southern neighbors prompted discussion of a general sectional insurrection in the late 1820s. Georgia's removal campaign and South Carolina's nullification movement helped make the alternative of secession more attainable for the seceding generation of Southerners. Removal was, at its fundamental level, an attack on federal authority. The campaign contained an attempt to deny the federal government jurisdiction over Indians. There you go. And the interesting thing is that the removal uh, some of it occurs during Jackson's presidency. There are parts of the Cherokee tribe that led by Major Ridge. And so Major Ridge, who's one of the Cherokee leaders who's kind of more willing to work with settlers and Tennessee militiamen, he, he, uh, he and his son John Ridge lead a group that are pro-treaty and they move out west earlier than the others. John Ross chief and the president of the Cherokee Nation, who is literate, who lobbies Congress extensively during the Jackson, meets with Jackson a couple times, gets nowhere. He's against removal. So during Jackson's presidency, the, the, the Indian removal bill does not lead immediately to removal. It, it provides funds for that purpose. And um, But Jackson gets underway using those funds to affect more change. But technically, by the by the stipulations of the bill, Jackson still got to get approval from the Cherokee Nation for them to move. And John Ross, leading the nation at this time, refuses all overtures. Now, some of this has been picked up on by historians who think, oh, Jackson, you know, is getting a bad rap. Here's Robert Remeni, probably lead among them. Andrew Jackson has been saddled with a considerable portion of the blame for the monstrous deed. He makes an easy mark. His objective was not the destruction of Indian life and culture. Quite the contrary, he believes that removal was the Indians' only salvation against certain extinction. The Indian problem posed a terrible dilemma, and Jackson had little to gain by attempting to resolve it. He could have imitated his predecessor and done nothing, but that was not Andrew Jackson. He felt he had a duty. Um, so that's Romani's point. You will see that through history. It was certainly Jackson's position that all he was doing was getting involved because otherwise it was going to be the state of Georgia forcibly removing people or just vigilante settlers forcibly removing people as they had done. Except that Jackson's actual policy involves not only forced removal, but the rounding up of Cherokees who were left into concentration camps. There are many who die just in these camps alone. The travel, the method of taking the trip to Mississippi is dictated by the U.S. Army. They're harsh to the Cherokees. There's accounts where they're being treated as dogs. Here's um, Reverend Daniel Buttrick. They were rounded up and taken into camps. They couldn't. Um, he's one of the missionaries. 
Um, they were rounded up and taken into camps. They couldn't all depart at once. Thus, two or three days, about 8,000 people, many of whom were in good circumstances and some rich, were rendered homeless, houseless, and penniless. While the soldiers, it would say, would often use the same language as of driving dogs and goad them forward with their bayonets. Ulucha, this is one of the Cherokees, um, said, The soldiers came and took us from our home. They drove us out of doors and did not permit us to take anything with us, not even a second change of clothes. There's a visitor from Maine who encounters the U.S. Army bringing groups of Cherokees over to the what will become Oklahoma. And this is what the visitor in Maine says. It's printed in the New York Observer, December 1838. We found them, about 1,100 in all, in the forest camped for the night by the side of the road, under a severe fall of rain, accompanied by a heavy wind, with their canvas for a shield from the inclemency of the weather, and the cold, wet ground for the resting place, where after the fatigue of the day, they spent the night. When I read the President's message that he was happy to inform the Senate that the Cherokee were peaceable and without reluctance removed, I wish the President could have been there every day in Kentucky with myself and have seen the comfort and willingness with which the Cherokee were making their journey. Traveler from Maine. Um, that president that the traveler from Maine is speaking about is now Martin Van Buren because by the time you forcibly remove the Cherokee, the last of the Cherokee, it's, it's Martin Van Buren's presidency. It is pretty easy, however, to draw a policy line between Jackson's policy and Martin Van Buren that is carrying it out. Certainly Jackson had no disagreement whatsoever in him carrying that out. And he is Jackson's chosen successor. He was Jackson's uh, Secretary of State and then Vice President, had his support. David Crockett notes that uh, that in one of his speeches, that obviously Jackson is picking Van Buren because he's going to institute his Indian policy and other policies that Jackson wants, where other candidates might have been more willing to stand up to him. So that's at least Davy Crockett's feeling that uh, it's a one-to-one policy between the presidents. I think you have in there... You can see Romani's point, and and you got to look at history. You know, you got to take every pain to be accurate, and you know, just this broad brush. Sometimes Jackson removed the Indians when it's actually this part of it that we focus on so much is during Van Buren's presidency. Um, Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. 
Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. But it's also not wrong. And if it if Jackson's goal was really to help the Indian people so much, I think there could have been a better, at, at minimum, a better policy of how they were going to conduct this removal. At one point, John Ross the leader of the Cherokee asks if he can supervise. He's like, okay, we'll move at this point. We're forced to, but can we supervise the move instead of Winfield Scott's army? And that is denied. Um, of course, the strongest resistance comes from the Cherokee people themselves. And this is a letter from Chief John Ross to the Congress. It is well known that for a number of years past, we have been harassed by a series of vexations which it is deemed unnecessary to recite in detail. We are overwhelmed. Our hearts are sickened. Our utterance is paralyzed when we reflect on the condition in which we were placed by the audacious practices of unprincipled men who have managed their stratagems with so much dexterity as to impose on the government of the United States in the face of our earnest, solemn, and reiterated protestations. The instrument in question, this is the treaty that was signed by a few, a few of the um, of Cher- the Cherokees, not the official government, is not the act of our nation. We are not parties to its covenants. It does not receive the sanction of our people. The makers of it sustain no office nor appointment to our nation under designation of chiefs, headmen, or any other title. That protest continues. One of George's strongest points is that when Georgia cedes its land to the federal government, Georgia and other states had land claims that go way out west. And when they ceded that land to the federal government, they signed a compact with the federal government. And in signing it, it's an 1802 document. It's signed during the Jefferson administration. The federal government agreed that it would help in confiscating Indian lands as they became available so it's kind of like some language there, but they did agree to help the state of Georgia in removing the Indians from their land. And that is a contention that's made by the state of Georgia during this process. But that was 1802 and nothing had been done with it directly until gold was discovered. So, you know, all of this is to say, look, we can talk about things being inevitable. You can talk about that. It might be ridiculous to say um, settlers should have stayed like on the shore or something and never gone inland and never settled in any land when their sustenance requires it, their farmers and the like. But on the other hand, when you look at something like a Cherokee nation that's established, that it already ceded much land. And if you want to start drawing lines on like what's bad, what's good, what should you feel a little guilt about or what should you, you feel bad about, we'll call it what you will, um, Something like the removal of the Cherokee Nation where you had a settlement that was established and trying to actually show civilization as we knew it then. I think it's a good point to start. And all you can, you know, there can never be really much to do about, um, you know, history has happened. And guilt, shame are pretty strong personal emotions that don't work well with history. Learning from history 
in a situation that might be metaphorically similar. That's the whole ball game, isn't it? So we learn so as not to do things again. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We do have a Patreon. So if you go there, there are people on the Patreon who have been getting some episodes a little bit earlier than others. And um, also certain leftovers from episodes that I wasn't able to get in the main episode and other thoughts that I have. If you like the program, please support us. And also, you know, anything you can do to spread the word, please write a review on one of the major podcast services, notably Apple Podcasts. Tell somebody on your blog about the podcast and help um, help spread the word. If you know someone that's interested in history and politics, let them know about it. You know, a lot of other podcasts out there these days, there's still just a few where they're actually hitting this subject matter in the dual way that we do history and politics. So thanks for listening.